This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Until I was like 18 years old, I thought was pronounced Palanda because that's how the family pronounced it. And they had so many words that they just screwed me up when I went to culinary school. People were like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'd be like, you know, Palanda. They're like, you mean Palenta? Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. Each episode of this podcast celebrates the notion that some of our most beloved dishes stir up special memories. And today I'm talking to a chef who hardly ever shares personal stories when he's making his cooking videos. In fact, we rarely see his face. He's like Oz behind the curtain. It's just his hands and the ingredients. And he is a legend on YouTube. All right, basically, this is mac and cheese with benefits, which is why I really do hope you give this a try soon. So please follow the links below for the ingredient amounts. He has millions and millions of followers on YouTube. He has a huge audience of devoted fans on allrecipes.com. And he is, without a doubt, one of the biggest names in food. Chef John, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. First of all, it's a big honor. And uh, I think this is my first official podcast ever. So I'm pretty excited. It's my third. Regarding regarding your Oz reference, I you know hope it works out a little better for me than in the movie. <laughs> but I appreciate it. We have all watched you, your hands, that is, and listened to you. You're such a good teacher. I think the thing that makes me find your videos so captivating is... You go slow enough for me to get it. When you see a recipe online, most of them go too quickly to keep up. And the thing I like is that you do it at a speed that every home cook can follow along with. Is that intentional or that's just your method? I'm not sure if anything I'm doing is intentional. And I, I think maybe that was one of the secrets to the success that I didn't really try to do anything. I just started doing the videos. I've always disliked the sped up video time lapse stuff. So what I end up doing is I'll start, you know, whisking in the oil into the vinaigrette and I'll do that for five or six, seven seconds. Then I'll stop the camera. I'll change the camera angle. I'll turn it back on. I'll finish whisking it in. So when all that's edited together, I think I just end up having more time with each step because I'm using that method versus, you know, the sped up footage. And if you have, you know, 45 seconds of whisking in the ingredients into the vinaigrette versus how it's done on some channels where it's just boom, 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 10 seconds, you're done. I think that gives me those extra moments to make my vague references and questionable puns and so forth. Speaking of, I caught one on your latest Pizzadilla video. I caught your Eminem reference. Oh, yeah. Maybe everybody didn't catch it, but I caught it. Well, you know what? People catch that. And I always get amused by it because it, it was inspired by the Eminem hit song. But I don't think people realize, especially 
most of my, you know, millennial viewers, that's actually a square dance reference. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And then I think a Malcolm McLaren reference way back when, and then eventually an Eminem reference. So I guess I'm saying I go back three generations of around the outside references. Well, you have a multi-generational audience, I know, because I know a lot of kids that like to watch your videos and they learn a lot of their parents don't cook and they're learning to cook from you. That's right. I always joke, be careful of that hot oil. In fact, maybe get your kid to turn it. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's always, I love getting those emails. I get them from parents that on the weekend, we, we pick one of your videos and then we cook with the kids and they get to make it. We have you up on the TV and it, those are some of my favorite feedback I get. So you're a professionally trained chef and you worked as a chef in the kitchen for a long time. So I'm assuming that's something you don't get to do too much anymore. Most of your cooking now is in your own kitchen. Yeah, I went to culinary school, did this sort of the classic culinary degree training, learn, learn the basics, and then did the externship and worked under a couple, you know, real chefs. But to be quite honest, it was a fairly unremarkable career based on, did you work for any famous chefs or Michelin star restaurants? Not really, but I always had sort of an entrepreneurial spirit. I was one of these people that would change jobs every two or three years, whether I needed to or not. Just for inspiration? Just to move around and do something new. And it's weird because one of the things I did between cooking jobs and chefing jobs was some desktop publishing where that was like the first wave of personal computers, the little Apple computers. And I would do resumes for some of my chef and cook buddies because one of my jobs was sous chef at the Carnelian Room and I would get just the worst resumes ever. And I would think, God, if these folks really need a hand with it. So I started doing that as kind of a side business. I would typeset resumes and help them word it and all that. And one thing led to another when the job at the Culinary Academy came about where they needed a chef that was classically trained, but could teach the business class of how to do desktop publishing and print resumes and menus and business cards and spreadsheets for the food costing and all that. It's like I just sort of magically had the perfect resume for that job. So that's really what started this journey is I got a job at the Culinary Academy based on my cooking experience and degree, but also that I had this computer experience. And a business background that a lot of chefs just don't cultivate. Well, it's funny. No kid goes to the Culinary Academy to learn how to do pricing spreadsheets and ordering formulas. But I would tell them this is the only class literally out of the entire school curriculum where you're going to have the skills of a master chef when you leave. All the other ones, you're going to have to work for 10 years to become a master butcher or a sauce maker. You don't need a lot of experience. A spreadsheet either works or it doesn't work. And either it tells you how many pounds to order or it doesn't. So that was sort of my rationale for letting say, you might want to pay attention to this class, even though I know it's the last class you wanted to take. So from that, you jumped into, you were one of the earliest adapters in the culinary world on YouTube. Yes. And it's a kind of a funny story because when I left the Culinary Academy, that's right when they started installing these big screens like above the chef in the classroom because the classes were getting so big. And I'm thinking these kids are paying, you know, 50 grand for this, you know, this school and they're actually watching the chef on TV. Like they're in the same room, but they can't see what he's doing. Right. So I'm thinking maybe we'll just cut out the middleman here. So that sort of started the idea. And that was it. YouTube had just started and kids spent half my class on YouTube watching videos. About what year was that? That was like 97, maybe. So eventually that led to, oh, I think I'll try doing a, like an online culinary school where I just do the same basic skills as a culinary academy. But 
people learn at their own pace via video. And then I realized, of course, especially back then, no one wanted to pay for anything online. They just wanted free content. And I had just been practicing doing recipe videos. And I got an email from someone at YouTube saying, hey, we'd like to make you a content partner. I totally thought it was spam. I just deleted it, didn't answer them. They sent like three or four more, delete, delete. Eventually, someone called me and they said, hey, sorry for the cold call, but we haven't had any response to any of these emails we sent you about, would you like to be a content partner with us? And I'm like, oh my God, that was, that was a real thing. Of course, I would like to have some of your money sent my way. So that sort of started the monetization of the channel. And of course, there was only tens of thousands of subscribers. not Millions, like now. Multi-millions. Like three and a half, I think, was the latest count. Yeah, I looked at it today and it was three and a half. I was incredibly jealous. So anyway, yeah, it's crazy how it blew up geometrically. But Well, I think the thing that makes you so exceptional is that you do consider the food the star of the show. And we really don't see you. We hear you, but we don't see you. And that is a very different approach than almost anybody cooking on any sort of outlet today because they all want to be superstars. Now, to be honest, nowadays when I tell the story, you know, like at a cocktail party, of course, it was all by design and it was just this brilliant model I came up with. But it really, the truth is I did not have any equipment to do an actual show. I didn't have a wireless mic. I didn't have lighting. I wasn't able to stand behind a range and show off the typical food video back then. So it really was by just necessity. I had, a, you know, remember those little Logitech webcams, like a little ball shaped eyeball. Yes. So I would have that just stuck on a, a old spice rack I had, like literally taped or like bungee corded to the thing. I would point it down at the cutting board and I would film my recipe and I'd move that over towards the stove when I had to. And then the next day I would just somehow, some way find the audio recording on the laptop and I would do a soundtrack and then I would chop it up and whatever. I don't even remember. Movie Maker, I think was the first video editing software I came about. So I started getting comments like, oh, there's, there's something different about this format. Were you shocked? It would shock me, not really initially, because it was still just a matter of a dozens, hundreds, thousands. But at one point, a video I did, I think it was, you don't have to be a cheese whiz to make your own cheese or something stupid like that. But I did a like a fromage blanc, like a fresh cheese video. And it ended up somehow on YouTube's homepage. That, back then, they used to like curate the content on the homepage. And I just remember, because on a good day, I would get like two emails. And I just had hundreds of emails. And I was like, something's going on. So that's when I went from, you know tens of thousands up to like the hundred thousand subscribers. And then it kind of went from there. So that kind of surprised me how much it ramped up appearing on YouTube's homepage. I guess it shouldn't because of the traffic, but that was the first time I was like, oh wow, this might actually be happening. And at the time, I mean, there really wasn't a lot of people doing straight recipe videos, like how to's. There were a ton of food content, quote unquote, but it was like either something jokey, like people seeing if they could eat a spoon of cinnamon to a bunch of people looking like they were trying out for Top Chef, like an audition reel. So I think I sort of accidentally found this niche of we're going to make a recipe in the next five, six minutes. That's all you're going to see. You're going to hear some of my smart ass comments and my, my narration, but really it's going to be about how to make this. I kind of compared it. I don't remember if you're a fan of that nature show, Planet Earth. Right. Remember Sigourney Weaver? I yes. think she might have done the first season. And I always thought that was such a brilliant format because it was just all these gorgeous visuals and you were just like the disembodied voice. So you were like in the scene. And I sort of started to realize, I think that's what it was, that since there was no chef in the frame, just hands and pans and food, people were like drawn into it. Like they were cooking with you, almost more of a point of view. I guess it's called point of view now with a GoPro. 
But back then, like that was sort of a novel thing. So the amazing thing to me is, is how your audience continues to grow. I mean, you would think at some point you have all the people who want to learn how to cook, but your audience just continues to grow. And I think part of that has to do with the wide variety of recipes that you bring to the table. I'm a sort of assuming that's because you live in San Francisco. And so you have a wide variety of ethnicities to pull from when it comes to recipe inspiration. Is that right? That's definitely a big part of it. That's a good call. Now, first and foremost, the channel is called Food Wishes. So the metaphor for just what viewers, what people leaving comments, either under the video or just contacting me directly, you know, I would like to see a video for this or I'll get a request. Can you make kachapuri? And I'm like, I maybe, excuse me, but I've never heard of that. So I'll Google it and I'll see pictures. And that will be how that exotic ethnic recipe comes about. So for those of us who don't know what it is, you want to fill us in? Oh, that is a Georgian, not near where you're from. It's over in Asia, the country of Georgia. Right. One of their national dishes is a bread dough that you roll out and then you roll up some cheese and it was like the original stuffed crust pizza. Okay. You roll up lots of cheese in the crust and you form it into like a boat shape and the inside will have like a cavity and then you bake that cheesy bread and then you crack a couple eggs or an egg inside and you finish it off with the egg cook and then you finish it with a couple pads of butter and pull off the ends of the boat, the pointy tips and you dip that in the runny egg cheesy center. Ooh, that sounds delicious. So anyway, I had no idea this was even a thing. Me either. So that's one half of the show is me getting those requests. The other part is, as you were saying, because I'm in San Francisco, I go out to the restaurant and I'll have something and I'll think that was really good. I would like to do a video for that and I'll kind of go from there. Your recipes go from Southern to Italian to all of these exotic type of things. You have, you cover all the bases. I like to try at least. And even desserts. Well, a lot of chefs don't do that. They won't even try to tackle desserts. I never understood that. That's become like a cliche on the cooking shows. Like, oh, I'm a... A hotline chef. I don't. I don't do baking or. I don't do pastry. Like what? What is the? What's the difference? Like I don't understand. See, most of the cooking I do is very. You don't need to measure a lot. It's a soup. It's a stew. It's just a little of this, a little of that. Like you know, I grew up watching my mom and grandma and aunts cook. Like all of our mamas cook. Like Not a lot of measuring, and when you're making a meat sauce, Sunday sauce. So when I do the baking and pastry stuff. It's kind of fun to have to measure the grams of butter for the puff pastry and then the lamination. And now I still refuse to measure dough with a yardstick. That kills me when I'm watching a show and I won't name names, but you know, the the one where they're doing all the testing in America in a kitchen. Right. But anyway, they like to roll the stuff out and they'll, they'll be like, and it should be 18 by 15. And then we're going to do a trifold, you know, just get it close. I don't go to that level. But there is part of that precision that appeals to me. And the baking and pastry, especially bread making, is where you have to be the most intuitive and you have to touch it. And people get mad and they send me emails. Why don't you put the bread in specific weights? And it's like, I could. And sometimes I do. But you still have to feel it. And I don't know what humidity you're baking in and if your flour is really dry or not. I could give you all kinds of specific precise measurements, but you really have to feel it. 
A lot of people will get a little frustrated with the biscuit recipe that I have on my website. And it's for that exact reason, because it's a matter of manipulation and how it feels and how you touch it and the humidity in the house that day and all of those other things. Yes. But it just takes a, a little bit of experience to know that. It's not something you know instantly. We'll have more with Chef John after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan, and we're talking with Chef John. I heard that there's like a drinking game where people have a drink every time you add a dash of cayenne to a recipe. <laughs> well, those poor people. <laughs> I, I, I'm not responsible for any of their rehab. No, I yes, that makes sense. So the cayenne is interesting because, and I don't know really how this started, and I don't seriously remember when it became like a meme where people are expecting it in every recipe, but I do use it in almost every recipe, even if it's really small amounts. I have this theory about micro seasoning where even just a tiniest pinch is not really perceivable is like, oh, that's kind of spicy, but it sort of opens up the receptors on your tongue for the other flavors. If you have a little cayenne and things, some of it is just this wacky theory I can't prove. And Eventually, people started noticing and commenting that I put cayenne in a little shake and everything. And so now I kind of do it on purpose, but not really because I still would put it in there anyway. Right. It's one of my favorites. I use it in just about everything also. Part of it is me wanting people to understand it's not like it's either not spicy and you didn't put any cayenne or it's spicy, it's hot, and you added cayenne. You can add it and it isn't even noticeable barely, or it is, depending on what the dish is, of course. So, uh, so yes, I do have an adventurous palate and I like to use lots of exciting ingredients and bold things. But at the same time, I, I think I have just as many very bland's not a good word, but you know, normal, less thrilling flavor profiles, I guess is a way to put it. Will you share some of your favorites with me? Like for me, bay leaf is one that I use quite a lot. Yeah, bay leaf. And anytime I do a stew or a soup, that's usually finds its way in there. I think other than cayenne, I'm a big fan of cumin. And it's funny, a lot of people, oh, I don't like curry. I don't like this. I don't like that. But that's only if they know you're doing that stuff. Like you make something with that stuff in it, people just enjoy it. They can't pick out that there was a pinch of turmeric or a little bit of coriander. I guess I should bring it up. But right now we're isolated because of the COVID-19 and the coronavirus when we can get back together with friends and family, what are you looking forward to cooking or eating? So I'm guessing based on the timing of when maybe this stuff blows over, I'm thinking like a big old barbecue, 4th of July, you know, all the fixings, potato salad and some ribs. And You almost sound like you're Southern. Well, in a former life, people that have tasted my biscuits have uh, said the same thing. So not to, you know, not to brag. Oh, we might have to have a biscuit throw down. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. So you're from New York originally, though. You're not Southern. I'm from the south of New York, but it's the north of New York. So let me explain. Where I'm from is the Finger Lakes rural farming region of New York State. 
Is that the Hudson Valley? No, it's south of Rochester, near the Finger Lakes, western New York, basically, which is very rural, very country. People listen to country music, they hunt, they fish, and if you just parachuted in there, you could be somewhere in the Midwest, you could be somewhere down south. It really is a very similar lifestyle, a lot of home cooking, a lot of farms, a lot of canning and putting up and all those kinds of things. Yeah, it's not any kind of urban, sophisticated cuisine. It's very, very country. So I grew up in that environment. And then you combine that with the mother side of the family were first generation Italian immigrants, all that cuisine. So it was kind of country Italian meets, you know. So that's why you said Sunday. Did you say gravy? What did you say? Sunday sauce? Sunday sauce. Sunday sauce. Yeah. Because, you know, they make a big pot of sauce on Sunday. Sometimes it was for pasta. Sometimes it was on polenta. Oh, yum. Uh, which, until I was like 18 years old, I thought was pronounced polanda because that's how the family pronounced it. And they had so many words that they just screwed me up when I went to culinary school. People were like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'd be like, you know, polanda. They're like, you mean polenta? I'm like, the corn, yeah, they're like, that's called, like, I literally never seen it spelled or it was just something I heard my grandparents say, which was like Italian and American kind of combined languages. So anyway, that was kind of a funny thing. But no, so I think I have the, like the Southern aesthetic for the food and the cooking and the, and the lifestyle. And I mean, soul food is soul food, no matter where you're eating it. It's the same idea. It's true. So, Chef John, also with the coronavirus, most of us are not going to the stores like normal. Are you a fan of like the pantry cooking or refrigerator cooking? Do you just kind of go and see what's in there and then decide what you're going to make? Yeah, that's how I generally eat myself. One of my favorite go-to, nothing in the house, is just a simple tuna spaghetti. Tuna fish, some red sauce, regular prepared spaghetti sauce or pasta sauce. Boil up some spaghetti. Sometimes you throw some capers in there, some anchovy, all, again, things you might have in the pantry. Some grated cheese. And that's one of my favorite all-time recipes. And that's just walking into the pantry, nothing, no, there's nothing to eat. What do we? And there is stuff to eat. I never would have thought about putting tuna with red sauce. So that sounds absolutely delicious, though. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever, ever had like a clam and linguine with a red sauce. Yes, of or, I mean, it's a similar flavor profile. There's a great Sicilian pasta that's sardines with olive oil and onions and kind of inspired by that, I guess. I love that. Uh, and I think I gave it some really pretentious Italian name on the when I posted like Altono or something. You know, I try to refrain from that because I, sometimes I can't help myself putting on airs and make it sound a little more highfalutin than it is. Chefy. Yeah, a little more chefy. But yeah, that's probably one of my go-tos. I just recently posted a shelter-in-place salmon loaf. A lot of people have those cans of salmon in their pantry. They don't even remember buying and they saw some doctor on TV saying they should buy canned salmon because it's good for you. And then they put it next to the tuna and never used it. So that's another one. We like salmon cakes are super easy. So salmon cakes, my mother used to make them. We call them salmon patties. Yep. I've never been able to replicate that recipe. Walk me through how you do that. I'm going to pick up some tips from you and I'm going to perfect that thing one of these days. The first step is pretty controversial because I uncan it, dump it in a bowl, and I do not pull out the skin and the vertebrae and all the nasty bits. My mother didn't either. No, you don't have to because the way it's processed, I guess it's cooked in the can under such high pressure. That stuff just that stuff is as soft as the meat. So as long as you really give it a good mash, you're good. And then I toss in an egg. I toss in just enough breadcrumbs to bring it together. Maybe a spoon of mayonnaise if you want it a little richer. Now I'm guessing that was her secret because 
that's a difference between sort of a rich, juicy salmon patty and a dry doorstop salmon patty. Just a few drops of lemon juice if you got some fresh lemon around. Some chopped up capers are nice. Maybe a teaspoon of the brine from the caper jar. I think there were onions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You could mince up some green onions. I have not been able to get it, though. I mean, I've been trying for like 14, 15 years and I just... (laughs) There's a missing some little something. You know, the missing might be her. No doubt. Here's a classic example. I'll get an email or a request. My wife and I had crepes in Paris on our honeymoon. I would love to. I've not been able to recreate that recipe. Well, every crepe recipe in the world is almost literally exactly the same. The ingredient you're missing is you're not on the street of Paris as newlyweds. That's the missing ingredient. You will never be able to recreate that taste memory without that. You can have your milk and your eggs and your flour and the same exact griddle. They could fly that griddle from France to your house. In fact, they could send the guy that made it to your house too, and it will not taste the same. That's why the oysters you had in New Orleans were so much better. And the Chipino you had in San Francisco, you can't recreate that. That's just one of the unfortunate or fortunate, depending on who you talk to, aspects about food. It's impossible to replicate the extra unseen intangibles around a recipe. You mentioned the food you grew up with. Have any of your videos been about your own family recipes? Definitely. Yeah. I posted over the years, many family favorites. Like that red sauce, for example? Yeah. You know, it's so funny because there was never a standard recipe for that. It's whatever they had around. Sometimes they had beef and meatballs and sausage and chicken in the same pot of sauce. Sometimes it was just beef. Sometimes it was just pork. The family had very few really specific recipes. In fact, one of my favorite family recipes growing up was, believe it or not, cabbage rolls, which doesn't sound like a classic Italian meal. I love cabbage rolls. But that was made once every couple of weeks, especially in the summer when the big cabbages were available. And I remember I finally filmed that recipe and my mom and aunts were upset because I added a little bit of Parmesan cheese to the filling, which they never did. I was trying to fancy it up, you know, that's right. when we first started the channel. That didn't go over well with the family that I changed. The, so there were some that were specific recipes. But no, I've posted a lot, of, a lot of family stuff over the years. And my mom and aunts were great pie makers. There's actually a video of my key lime pie has my mom's hands in there. I filmed it on a visit to her when I went back to visit her one year. How fantastic. People were commenting on her beautiful manicure. She was crimping that dough. Let's go back to those cabbage rolls for a minute. Yes. I'm really uh, intrigued by that. My mother never made that, but I, I've only had them once or twice, but love them. Oh, they're so good. You cook the cabbage a little bit first? Yeah, you cut out the core and you put the cabbage in a big pot with a couple inches of water. You're basically steaming it more than anything. So it's soft enough to roll? And then you turn it on high and every couple minutes, walk by with your tongs and pull off another big leaf. It'll kind of peel off the head. Okay. And I just put those in a big bowl, just pile them up, pile them up. And as they sit layered, the hot leaves on top of each other, they kind of soften up. And that's step one. Then you just let that go. Just let it sit there while you make your filling. It was a pound of beef, a stick of butter, and a cup of rice, long grain rice. Okay. A pound of beef. A stick of butter. A stick of butter. Which is a ridiculous amount, speaking of Southern cooking. Not in my life. Not where you're from. No, that's sort of normal. totally appropriate. And a cup of long grain rice. Teaspoon of fine salt, handful of parsley, some garlic, some sauteed onion. They used to saute the onion in the stick of butter. Black pepper, I remember. 
But that was the basic ratio. And then you would make, if you had five pounds of beef, you five cups of rice, five sticks of butter. When you go to roll it up and then you put it in like a little casserole dish or whatever, when you cook it, do you put the red sauce over it? Yeah, so it was kind of like a Dutch oven. They were maybe six, eight inches deep and wide. And I always was so nervous because this was not like high-end cookery. They had these two little thin handles. That I, every time I would see my mom or aunt pulling it out of the oven, I would swear it was going to snap off. And there was going to be like 20 pounds of cabbage rolls going everywhere, but it never did. But anyway, you, you layer those up and any of the extra cabbage you use to sort of pad the bottom and you put one layer between each row and then more on top. They would do sliced onions between the layers of cabbage. And then the cooking liquid was basically half red sauce or just a smushed up jar of plum tomatoes like the Santa Marzano. It wasn't necessarily okay. a prepared sauce, just smushed up red plum tomatoes and half water, I would say. So kind of a brothy. And they fill that right up to the brim because it all would get absorbed. Right. And then they check it after a couple hours. They'd often, I remember them adding some more water to the top if it looked like they had soaked it all up. Yeah, the rice will eat it up, right. That was basically the recipe. So did they cover it with aluminum foil to cook it or it has yes. a pot? Well, they had a lid on the pot. Okay. I'm making that. I am so making that. Remember those, it was kind of a blue, like a dark blue galvanized aluminum pot, almost like a canning material, only it was oval. I just still remember these pots. My mother has one. Yeah. I have one at this house. That's what there's our official cabbage roll pot was. But as long as it's deep enough to hold everything and you got enough liquid in there. Some people use those for turkeys. Yes. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Okay, I'm making that. That's going to be one of my quarantine dishes. That sounds so <laughs> delicious. So yeah, so if you follow the cabbage roll, and in fact, I think I did a redo of it. And I have a lamb cabbage roll recipe, which is the same idea, just with lamb and little Middle Eastern spices. Super good. But you'll see the, the basic procedure there. I can't wait to make it. It sounds delicious. Okay, we're going to spin around and it's going to be 4th of July and grilling season. So give me some of your favorites for grilling season. What would you suggest? I always gravitate towards the quicker, easier, Asian-inspired grill recipes. We have a couple satay recipes, pork and a chicken. I just like the thin sliced meat, skewered, simple marinade, do it the night before, the morning of. And then you don't have to worry about, oh, is it medium? Is it medium rare? Is it reached an internal temp of this? Or is the connective tissue broken down? You know, it's like sometimes people are cooking a brisket. It's like, it's such an ordeal. Can't even enjoy it by the time it's done. There were so many rules and regulations and guidelines. I like just marinate the meat, throw it on a grill, a couple minutes, turn it over a couple minutes and we're eating. So I would say any of our skewered grill ideas, shish kebab, I think we have something there just called shish kebab or chicken. Maybe it was called chicken shish kebab, but that came out really well. If I had to pick them, 4th of July is a, you know the all-American holiday, but I tend to go with the ethnic recipes on that. Although our barbecue chicken has been very well reviewed because generally people cook that thing black because they put the sauce on too early. So if you check out that video, we marked the skin side down. We started that way and then we let it pretty much barbecue all the way on the other side. You know, these are half chickens. Okay. Barbecue on the other side so that that rib cage and the bones and underneath are basically protecting it. And it doesn't really matter if that side gets charred too much. And then towards the end of the cooking, you can paint nice thick coating of your barbecue sauce on that skin and finish it off and judge the color. I also like to make a few slashes in the thigh and the leg when you do barbecue chicken so that marinade and the smoke really gets into that joint. Well, that's a good tip. I never tried that. Yeah, one little cut near where the wing hits the breast and that thickest part, just because those spots take longest to cook. So 
you're kind of evening it out so the breast isn't cooked and you're still waiting for those joints. That's a great tip. So yeah, I always like to make a few slashes in the thigh and the leg and then whatever marinade you're using. There's a upstate New York or Western New York recipe for grilled chicken. A lot of people call it fireman's chicken because if you go to a fireman's carnival or a fundraiser, it's always the chicken they would grill and serve in Western New York. Really? And you ask anyone from that area, they're like, oh, I know that chicken. But it's actually was invented by a professor from Cornell University. And I think I posted it on Food Wishes as Cornell Chicken. But it's a weird marinade. It's oil and eggs and spices and seasonings. But you blend, put that in a blender and it looks almost like a really, really thin, well, it looks like a, a salad dressing, which it kind of is. So it's eggs, oil, vinegar, salt, pepper, whatever, uh, thyme, different spices. And then you marinate your chicken that overnight and you grill it the next day over some hot coals, hopefully. And that is a really, really good chicken. There's an egg in that marinade. Did I get that right? There's an egg. Yeah, it's so Now, what weird. does that accomplish? The protein, I don't know. I'm no scientist. And in fact, I don't like to know too much about why this stuff works. I like a little magic and a little mystery with my food. People sort of can overanalyze this stuff. But it's something to do with the protein and the acid in the vinegar that just penetrates that meat. That sounds fantastic. I'm trying that one too, for sure. So the name of it is Cornell Chicken. By the way, I love that pizza dia recipe because I... Yes. Thank you, Papa John. Yeah. Well, I just... I ripped them off. Well, I think it's great and it's easy, especially when you're doing some pantry cooking. You can whip up a pizza dough in two seconds if you don't have one. Yeah. You probably have all the stuff to make it. You can do it with all-purpose flour or self-rising flour. And you can basically make your little crust in literally five minutes, have a pizza. But I love the idea of folding it over. When I made mine this week, I didn't fold it over like that. So I'm going to do that and make the little pizza pocket, little pizza dia. And I like the mozzarella that you used. And did you put a little sausage with it? And I think, I, yeah, I did. I think some sausage, some pepper. I did, a, you know, obviously all any of the toppings don't affect the technique. There's a recipe you just reminded me of that. I don't know if you're a fan of Indian food. I'm a giant fan of Indian food and I don't get it very often. Okay. What is the fried dumpling they do that has the potato and the peas? Samosa. Oh, samosas are fabulous. So check out the Samosa Dia video. Ooh, that sounds delicious. The filling, it could not be simpler. It's the Indian spice, the potatoes, peas. But the dough and the folding and the frying is so messy. And it's so I was like, I love that flavor profile. But I was like, how can we do this and make it like way faster and easier? And I'm like, duh, let's just take a flour tortilla, which is similar to what the pastry is, and just fry that in a pan with the filling, cut it in triangles. and What a great idea. Dip it in that green chutney, the cilantro and the serrano. We have that recipe on there also. It was so good. That is a great idea. And I see that posted. Uh, people will share a picture on Twitter once in a while. People say like, what's your mission? That's it. Like a thing you had at a restaurant that you loved, but it's just a pain in the butt to make it home. And then someone you saw on the internet figured out how to make it a little easier so you could make it any weeknight in just a few minutes. Chef John, thank you so much for being on today. I know our All Recipes family absolutely loves you. They love your videos. You've inspired so many to cook. And I just want to thank you for giving me some new ideas and things to cook as well. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And I love them and I love the support and the feedback. It sounds cliche, but hearing back from people that had successful experiences, especially in these trying times, people that are cooking with their family and keeping it all together over a nice meal, that really does make what I do just so fulfilling and satisfying. So 
thank you so much for having me and for all the kind words and the great questions. It was a lot of fun. So thank you. Listen, y'all, you can subscribe to Chef John's videos on Food Wishes at YouTube, and you can find his recipes at allrecipes.com. You don't want to miss those. If you're just starting out or if you're a very accomplished cook, you're going to love them either way. Coming up on the next episode of Homemade, a woman who fell into a career making food videos, kind of by accident. When my husband and I were living in Japan, and I really miss talking to people in fluent English. So I said, well, I'll go to the grocery store, always have been captivated by food. So I just picked up some things as I went shopping. I'm like, well, what if I just film myself talking about whatever it is that I'm exploring or opening or tasting? And it just started from there. So it was mostly candies. There's just an amazing candy selection in Japan with these kits that you can make and assemble and pour and shape and make this is me. So here I am, a grown woman sitting in front of a laptop in front of a window, opening packages of candy and mixing and it was the best. It just started from there and I just continued and that was gosh, we're coming on 10 years now. She moved on from candies to some really exotic and even weird foods. I'm telling you, Emmy Made from Emmy Made in Japan will try just about anything. You do not want to miss this show. Subscribe to the podcast right now. It's free, and that way you won't miss a single episode. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at allrecipes.com as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.